Hi, my name is Sue Miller, and I'm a partner within the commercial litigation team at Stevenson Harwood. I'm joined by Alina Neal of Counsel and Harriet Campbell, professional support lawyer. The subject of this podcast is the jurisdiction of the English courts. This is particularly topical for two reasons. First, there has been a recent flurry of interesting cases on jurisdiction. And second, in a few months' time, the European jurisdictional regime is likely to change significantly as the UK comes to the end of the Brexit transition period, the 31st of December 2020. Many, maybe most of us, do not have the luxury of reading every judgment on jurisdiction issues in full. This podcast provides a neat snapshot of the current position, highlighting the key points with fuller notes available in the accompanying article. We've divided it into three sections. First, an overview of the current European jurisdictional regime. Second, a closer look at two recent cases on jurisdiction and their impact. And third, a brief gaze into our jurisdictional crystal ball to look into the future. So, over to Alina for the first topic, an overview of the current European jurisdictional regime. Before outlining the current European regime, let's quickly recap why jurisdiction is important in the context of a dispute. Different jurisdictions can result in dramatically different outcomes, from the approach taken to disputes about jurisdiction clauses themselves, to issues such as the cost of legal proceedings and the length of time it takes to get to trial. The ease with which any eventual judgment can be enforced is also obviously crucial. In England, there are two main jurisdiction regimes, the common law regime and the so-called European regime. In this podcast, we are focusing on the European regime, which for now we'll refer to as including the Hague Choice of Court Convention. Unlike the common law regime, the European regime is based on conventions and legislation. The key legal instruments are the recast Brussels regulation, and there are also two predecessors to the Brussels recast, which broadly speaking apply where proceedings were initiated before it came into force. These are the 2001 Brussels regulation, also known as the original Brussels Regulation, and the Brussels Convention. Next, we have the 2007 Lugano Convention. This is similar to the original Brussels Regulation, but applies between the EU and Norway, Switzerland and Iceland. The UK is currently a party because of its deemed membership of the EU, but is also applied to join in its own right, so this may play an increasingly important role next year. Whether or not it will join is uncertain because the current contracting states, including the EU, must unanimously agree to the UK's accession. Finally, although not strictly speaking a European instrument, there is the Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements 2005. Although signed by many countries, including China and the US, it's currently only enforced between the EU, Singapore, Montenegro and Mexico. The UK is, again, currently a party because of its deemed membership of the EU, and again, it has indicated it hopes to join in its own right after the transition period ends. Thanks. And in fact, hot off the press, the UK has now formally deposited a new notice of accession to the Hague Convention. So this will come into force for the UK in its own right from 1st of January 2021. So Alina, in a nutshell, what are the key points about these regimes and the key differences between them? Well, the Brussels recast has a wide scope. It applies to civil and commercial matters where the defendant is either domiciled in an EU member state or where parties to a contract have agreed that the courts of an EU member state will have jurisdiction. At present, the Brussels recast, where it applies, takes precedence over all other regimes, including the English common law regime and the Hague Choice of Court Convention. Its broad aim, and that of the Lugano Convention, is that the defendant should be sued in their home court, 
where they're domiciled, unless a specific exception, such as a jurisdiction agreement and a contract, applies. It also provides that a judgment obtained in an EU court can be enforced in any other EU country as if it were a judgment of that country, so it's very simple to enforce. And finally, one of the key reasons that the original Brussels regulation was recast was to address the problem of the Italian torpedo. Thank you. And what exactly is the Italian torpedo, Alina? Well, to explain the Italian torpedo, we have to turn the clock back to the position under the original Brussels regulation and the Lugano Convention. Under those rules, if parallel proceedings occur in member state courts, priority is always given to the court first seized, i.e. the court where proceedings are started first. That is the case whether the court first seized is the court the parties have chosen in a jurisdiction clause or not. All other courts must then stay proceedings until the court first sees determines jurisdiction. This is known as the lease alibi pendants rule. The Italian torpedo is essentially a litigation technique where a party deliberately commences proceedings in a slow-moving jurisdiction in breach of a jurisdiction clause to delay or prevent being sued in the court specified by the jurisdiction clause. It's known as the Italian torpedo because Italy is a jurisdiction in which the courts can take time to establish jurisdiction – often establishing liability first, or at least at the same time. The Brussels recast defused the torpedo by providing that where there's an exclusive jurisdiction agreement in favour of a member state court, any other court has to stay proceedings until that court has decided jurisdiction, irrespective of whether the other court was seized of the proceedings first. The scope of the investigation that the chosen court can undertake to determine whether or not they have jurisdiction is another matter, and one we'll look at in the recent case law section with Harriet in a moment. It's also worth noting that this anti-torpedo device only applies to exclusive jurisdiction agreements in favour of member state courts. In Gulf International Bank and Aldwood in 2019, the court held that where proceedings are brought in breach of an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of a non-member state, a member state court has no discretion to stay proceedings unless the non-EU court was seized first, so that's certainly something to bear in mind for next year when the UK courts become non-EU courts. Other changes brought about by the Brussels recast, which differentiate it from the Lugano Convention, are that enforcing judgments across the EU is easier, as there's no requirement for a declaration of enforceability, something which could often take several months. The Brussels recast can apply even where none of the litigating parties are based in the EU, provided they've agreed to the jurisdiction of an EU court. This is in contrast to the Lugano Convention, where the defendant needs to be domiciled within a contracting state. Okay, so you can see that the Brussels recast is similar to, but perhaps better than, the Lugano Convention. Um, but how does the Hague Convention compare? Um, well, you can see the detailed answers to this question in the article accompanying this podcast. But the key points to be aware of are that it only applies from both a recognition and enforcement perspective, to exclusive jurisdiction agreements in favour of courts of contracting states entered into after the 1st of October 2015. So there's no application where there's no specified clause, for example, in a tort claim, or where the clause is non-exclusive and the parties would need to revert to the common law rules to determine jurisdiction. It may also not apply to English jurisdiction clauses agreed prior to the UK's accession to the Hague Convention in its own right. There's no case law in this point, but there appears to be a substantial risk it will not apply. There are also circumstances in which, assuming that UK also sees the Lugano Convention, the Lugano Convention will take precedence. Generally, it's more limited in scope than the Brussels recast, with significant exceptions. 
Although broadly speaking, it also covers civil and commercial matters. It does, however, reproduce, although not in such detail, the provisions from the Brussels recast designed to remove the threat of the Italian torpedo. Okay, so in conclusion, would you say the Hague Convention is good, but perhaps not perfect? Yeah, I think that's a good summary of it. It's good, but not perfect. So I think I'll pass over to Harriet now to look at some specific recent case law, putting some of these points into practice. Yes, so I'm looking at two recent cases which highlight some of the challenges involved in establishing jurisdiction. So thank you, Alina, for explaining the concept of the Italian torpedo so clearly, because this issue was really confronted head-on in the recent case of Generali Italia and Pelagic Fisheries. So this was a fishing vessel insurance dispute. Pelagic Fisheries issued proceedings in Italy under what it argued were Italian jurisdiction clauses. Generali Italia then issued proceedings here in England, um, claiming uh, there were English jurisdiction clauses. The Italian courts stayed their proceedings to allow for the English courts to determine whether they had jurisdiction, and the High Court was asked to consider two key questions. The first was whether it should go ahead and look at the jurisdiction question, or whether it should wait for the decision of the Italian courts. And bear in mind, Pelagic had issued in Italy first, under what it claimed were Italian jurisdiction clauses. And then secondly, if it should go ahead and look at the clause, Was it, in fact, an exclusive jurisdiction clause under the Brussels recast? Um, So just to be clear, the parties were claiming there was a jurisdiction clause in favour of, on the one hand, Italy, and on the other, England. How how did that work? Yes. So this case highlights what often happens in contractual disputes. So here, there were actually multiple parties and multiple contracts. But just to give an example... One of the relevant contracts stated under the heading Choice of Law and Jurisdiction, Law English, Jurisdiction English, but that was immediately followed by the sentence, this contract shall be governed and construed in accordance with Italian law and subject to Italian jurisdiction. So not particularly helpful. Um, Other contracts contain similarly uh, contradictory indications. And I think this often happens where there are either informal agreements or agreements made on modified standard terms. And when a jurisdictional question arises, it can actually be quite difficult to track back and ascertain what the true position is. So in that case, what did the court actually decide? Well, on the question of whether or not the English court should look at the jurisdiction clause, the court decided it should. And it reached this decision for three principal reasons. First, Article 31 of the Brussels recast requires any court which is not a chosen court under an exclusive jurisdiction clause to stay proceedings while the court that has been chosen takes that decision. Here, looking at the contractual picture in the round, there was only at best a non-exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of Italy. So Brussels recast didn't actually mandate a stay of the English proceedings. Secondly, it was held that there was actually at least a prima facie case that in fact the parties had agreed to the exclusive jurisdiction of the English courts. And that suggested that the Italian courts should, as they in fact had, be the ones to stay proceedings. And then thirdly, in practical terms, if the English courts stayed proceedings, it would then be the Italian court which would have to analyse the English jurisdiction clause. And the court held that would actually defeat the purpose of the anti-torpedo provisions of the Brussels recast. And the court also suggested that given the Italian court had already stayed proceedings, any further stay risked allowing the dispute to descend into what it called the self-perpetuating politeness of an Alphonse and Gaston cartoon. 
And for anyone that doesn't know what that is, and that included me, it's apparently where two people say, after you, no, after you, etc., etc. So having decided that it should go ahead and look at the jurisdiction clause, on the second question, the court also concluded that it was in fact an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of the English courts. Um, and a couple of points arise which is helpful for parties to understand how the courts make this kind of decision. The first point is that the jurisdiction clause in favour of the English courts was a bespoke, specifically agreed provision, whereas the references to Italian law and jurisdiction derived from standard terms. So the court gave this more weight. And the court also held that it was actually unlikely that the parties had intended to allow each other to sue in different jurisdictions over the same incident because it deemed that would have been uncommercial. So in conclusion, Generali Italia and Pelagic give some hope, at least I think for contractual disputes, that the Italian torpedo will be safely diffused by the English courts. So next year, if the Lugano Convention uh, or earlier Brussels Convention applies, but not for any reason the Hague Convention, this sort of analysis of the Liz Alibi Pendens rule will be particularly relevant. And the other case we're looking at is Senior Taxi and Augusta Westland, which is another commercial court decision of 2020. So this case focuses on another aspect of Brussels recast, and that is anchor defendants. Article 8 of Brussels recast permits a defendant domiciled within the jurisdiction to act as a sort of jurisdictional anchor for other defendants who are based elsewhere, provided that, one, the claim is closely connected to a claim against a UK domicile defendant, and two, it's necessary to hear the claims together to avoid the risk of irreconcilable judgments. So although it's long been clear that there's a test to be satisfied about whether the claims against defendants are sufficiently closely connected, up until now it's been unclear whether or not the claim against the anchor defendant itself is subject to a merits test. And in Senior Taxi, the commercial court confirmed that it was. So what was the dispute in Senior Taxi actually about? So this claim related to a fatal helicopter crash caused by manufacturing defects. And the defendants were English and Italian design and manufacturing companies. And the claim was anchored in England by one English company. That company then successfully applied for summary judgment in its favour. And on dismissal of the claim against the English company, the Italian defendants applied to set aside the proceedings served on them because the jurisdictional anchor had been lifted. The court agreed that this should happen. And in giving judgment, it helpfully clarified some other points regarding anchor defendants. So first, it held there must be a sustainable claim against the anchor defendant. The court ruled that without an arguable claim against the anchor, there is no close connection between the claims, because in fact, there's no connection at all, because the claim against the anchor doesn't really exist. Secondly, it held that the merits test does not require a finding of abuse or bad faith. It simply requires an analysis that the claim is viable. So in this case, the parties accepted this could be equated to a real prospect of success or a serious issue to be tried. And thirdly, in another recent case, Privat Bank and Kolomoisky of 2019, it was held that once the close connection test had been established, it didn't matter if the anchor defendant had been joined with the sole object of founding jurisdiction. And the court observed that that remains the position, provided that the merits test is passed. That was actually a case relating to the Lugano Convention, which contains similar provisions. 
So although this was a judgment about Brussels recast, it will remain relevant if the UK joins the Lugano Convention. And it will also be relevant to cases under the common law regime where similar provisions apply. So in summary, this case confirms that there has to be a sustainable claim against the anchor defendant. But it doesn't matter if the anchor has then been joined with the sole purpose of founding jurisdiction. All these cases relate to the Brussels recast regulation. But what do you think will happen when, as we must assume, we are no longer party to that in a few months' time? And what, if any, changes should businesses be thinking about making in terms of jurisdiction clauses as of now? Well, the approach taken by the English courts to the issues raised in these cases is likely to remain relevant. Where the Hague Choice of Court Convention doesn't apply, and assuming we have acceded to it, neither does the Lugano Convention, English courts will apply the common law rules under which issues we've discussed, such as anchor defendants and parallel proceedings, will remain a relevant factor. And although we now know that the UK will be a party to the Hague Convention from next year, we're still waiting to hear whether the EU will agree to the UK's accession to Lugano. Alina, apart from the wider context of a possible trade agreement, what do you think are the main concerns for the EU on this point? One of the potential sticking points is the role of the CJEU. Under the Brussels recast, the CJEU acts as an arbiter between the courts of member states, ensuring that there is consistent application of the rules. Where a national court has doubts, it can refer questions to the CJEU. Under Lugano, however, courts of non-member states only have to pay due account to the CJEU case law relating to Brussels recast. It's not clear how that might work in practice, and this may be a reason why the EU is reluctant to agree to the UK's accession, although there are obviously pros and cons for both sides. Further, as we've seen, there's no method for defusing the Italian torpedo in the Lugano Convention, so you might see the return of that sort of game-playing in international litigation with a European element. Thanks, Alina. Um, And so turning sort of finally to a more practical question, what do you think people should do when looking at their jurisdiction clauses? That's a really tough question. The benefit of an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of the English courts remains a substantial one. If the UK accedes, as is likely to the Hague Convention, an exclusive jurisdiction clause may be preferable to a non-exclusive one. That said, some parties may want to retain the flexibility of a non-exclusive jurisdiction clause, even if that means the clause does not benefit from the Hague Convention. Many finance contracts, for example, retain non-exclusive or asymmetric jurisdiction clauses, even though they do not benefit from the additional protection the Brussels recast was designed to introduce. In terms of ensuring an exclusive jurisdiction clause does benefit from the Hague Convention, parties may wish to potentially restate that jurisdiction clause upon the UK's accession to ensure that the clause falls within its scope. The practicality of that is obviously dependent on the particular circumstances of any particular contractual relationship. Another option some parties may wish to consider is switching from litigation to arbitration, where there is no foreseeable change to the recognition and enforcement regime. But the pros and cons of that, as opposed to litigation, are vast and possibly the subject of another podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 